Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith and me, Anthony Bruno. Today, Matt turns the tables on me a bit, and we discuss crisis communications, basically how leaders and companies can authentically communicate with their audience during a time of crisis, and in particular, how to communicate bad news and your own mistakes. This is particularly important during a time when there's been lots of bad news and lots of mistakes being made across the board during the coronavirus crisis. So with that, let's get right into it. Thanks again for listening. Today, I would like to talk about something that's really in your area of expertise, something around crafting a narrative, communication, and and really how that's sort of been substituted for leadership at this point, it seems like. I'll talk about some current events that relate to this, but the goal isn't really so much necessarily to comment on the personal or the actual events that are happening right now as much as just to point out some strange things I see in leadership substitutions around narrative. So as a guy, you, who crafts narratives for a living, helps to communicate narratives. I wonder what's your general view of, of the importance of getting your story out there, crafting a narrative, trying to control the narrative. Like, How do you see that working when it comes to businesses and leadership? That's an interesting question. I think that a narrative is something that needs to be clear to other people that you're trying to, you know, talk to. It's like there's there's a lot of noise in the world, right? Like a lot of noise. And the idea that people can get confused about what it is that you do or what it is that you want them to know and whatnot, it's very easy for that to happen because people see things, they make knee-jerk reactions, they make assumptions. People are doing everything they can to get attention. And sometimes that attention is going to be achieved at your expense, regardless of whether it's accurate or not. I mean, there's all kinds of things like that that happens, okay? I think way early on, in my career, someone told me once, like, you know, like, no one's going to toot our horn for us. So we got to kind of toot it ourselves, right? So kind of an older phrase, but it's accurate. And so to go out there and say, look, this is what we're trying to do. This is why we're trying to do it. And this is how you, speaking in very, very vague terms now, this is how you can benefit from all of this. These are messages that people need to hear and know, and it needs to be communicated consistently and clearly as much as humanly possible. So the thing is, when you start using terms like narrative, I think that sometimes has like a negative term because it's like, okay, people have a certain point of view that they want to get across and now they just sort of stick to their narrative. Like you've heard that phrase before, stick to your narrative. It's almost like it's a false story. Just stay on message, I guess. So there's a danger of that for sure, right? But at the same time, there's narrative and then there's truth. Truth is an absolute, but it also has a lot of variances to it, right? Like there, a lot of things are true, but what do those truths mean? And when we start talking about what do the truths mean, that's where the narrative comes in. The usefulness of even that phraseology, you know, talking about narrative, crafting a narrative, it's understanding that the way that information can stick in someone's head, it has to be structured in a way that it's quickly understandable and that it's memorable in some way. So it has to be clear. You basically have to assume from a marketing standpoint or business is trying to get its message out there, we want our message to be out there so that people can understand what we do and how we can help. And, you know, you have to figure that most people are going about their day with dozens of other priorities way beyond what, you know, the message that you're trying to get through to them. So it has to be sort of simplified. I'm trying to look at it in the most favorable light. The most generous way I can think about it is that it's done for the benefit of the listener to make things more clear, things that might be fuzzy to give them more clarity so that they have the information they need to make good decisions. Exactly, exactly. It's, when we say good decisions, I prefer to think of it as the right decisions for them, which exactly, can be yeah. different than the right decisions for well, the boss or the speaker, exactly, right? And so that's how I look at it. And that's where you kind of get into this little fuzzy line between messaging and marketing. 
as a career journalist, my view on marketing has evolved, but it's also tends to kind of live in this world of marketing is more crass marketing anyway, not good marketing, but crass marketing can be more of a manipulation than anything else. And, and that's something that when you're trying to craft a good narrative, a good message, I think you want to avoid. I think you're right. And I think that good marketing, all good marketing is, is good communication. That's all it really is. It's just telling people what you do and how you can help. Maybe you use some creative means for trying to get their attention. Think of some of the different ideas that have been done in Super Bowl ads at different times to try and to try and garner attention. Because the message sense. itself is almost the easy part. It's getting someone's attention to pay to that message is the hard part. And that's where the wide gets blurred very, very, very easily. Being thoughtful in your messaging, going through the heavy lifting as a business owner or as an entrepreneur or marketer, any leadership role to make sure that you're communicating what the listener needs to hear to understand what you're saying. Like that's on you. It's your responsibility to do that, to not have like muddled talk or confusing talk. Same time, the other side of it, it can cause great damage. It's almost as though the communications folks have sort of have gotten deeply ingrained within organizations, with whether they be government institutions or companies, and they really muddled down what's being said. They either specifically trying to diffuse a conversation so people aren't sure what's happening, or they try and craft a narrative that basically it paints them in a favorable light. You know, gives them the best perspective possible from the listener, essentially. Does that make sense? Sort of. Can I maybe give an example? Okay, so I'm going to talk about the coronavirus stuff. Well, one, I think it's a real issue. And two, I think that it's been totally bungled by leaders. And the effort to use narrative as a manipulative device seems to be really, really clear. I'm going to talk about a couple of people, but I'm not for or necessarily against any of these people. But I'll just talk about Trump specifically and how he's handled this. There basically, there are a couple of things that are repeated by everyone over and over again. And what they are is that the risk to Americans is very low due to Trump's unprecedented steps, his bold early action that created enormous controversy with the travel bans. And it's just over and over again. It's like the risk to Americans is very low. And thanks to Trump and his unprecedented action early on, that's the message of trying to explain. And it's over and over. And you hear Every talking head out there that's sort of pro-Trump trying to communicate this to people. What it does is I think if, in fact, the risks were very low to Americans and, you know, if Trump's actions really did save the day, then that would be maybe effective communication. But I think that as things are unfolding, it doesn't seem clear that that's true. And I think, you know, time will tell for sure. But I think the important thing is I see the use of trying to structure the phraseology that people are using. It's designed to make people think, to give the impression Trump did his part by boldly acting early on with the travel bans and not mentioning the fact that the CDC wasn't testing people. Don't talk about that part. Anyway, that seems to me a manipulative narrative that I see over and over again. Does that make sense? Like it stuff do, like it, that? it does. You're talking about political communications now, political messaging, and that's a whole beast of its own. So there's that in terms of just like the background, right? And now in terms of the specifics, you're talking about a situation with the coronavirus spread that is largely unknown in terms of any details. And then on top of that, the timing, which is entering into an election cycle. You're talking about a perfect storm of bullshit, basically. <laughs> Sorry to, use, yeah. to be crass, but that's kind of what you're seeing happening right now. And that applies to all parties. I mean, how many times do you see a political ad and it's like, whatever they say, you know, it's usually like, we live in Colorado and, and 
if there's like a Democratic ad against, you know, Mike Kaufman, Mike Kaufman, bad for Colorado. I mean, that's really it. That's really all they can. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of numbers. There's a bunch of really scary looking black and white photos. But then this is basically bad for Colorado. And that's all so they can try to get across, right? Yeah, and that's it. You're right. I mean, from a political standpoint, because they're really trying to influence behavior around the edges, you know, they're really trying to influence points of view around the edges, you know, the swing voters or whatever. That specific phraseology is critical, I think, in trying to influence people because it's a really small group, really, that are even influenceable at that point. I don't think you only see this within politics. I think you see this kind of thing within a lot of like corporate leadership as well, where basically there's a lot of, you know, sort of cover your ass approach to things. Or if we talk specifically about political campaigns, as we have been with Trump and others, then I get that. And again, the same vein and the same situation. If you look at things that are said by the WHO leading up to this, one of the things, if you watch one of their press conferences, this is a trick, I think, to control narrative, is that people will say things like, as we've always said, the risk for this could grow. They basically have, up until today, when it's clearly a global pandemic, have refused to call it a global pandemic because the word is stigmatizing. They don't want to call it a global pandemic. It demoralizes the frontline workers. So they don't want to use those words. But because they don't get ahead of it as a leader, they use language that gives them an out later. They hedge their language, essentially. And I think the problem with all that is that leadership has to come from a point of where you're willing to let go of the hedges and sort of step in front of it. So my whole point with all of this is I think that narrative is sort of replaced leadership as like a tactic, the approach to actually lead a group through a traumatic situation or difficult times, messaging is the answer. Narrative crafting is the answer. And that all drives back to what we're saying before is that when you start using terms like messaging and narrative, it's become synonymous with smokescreen, spin. I mean, shoot, the first conversation you and I ever had when we first met and started talking about me even coming to work for you was, you know, we're not in the spin. I'm like, it's not spin, it's education. It's being clear, but you're absolutely right. I mean, like, Messaging can only do so much. Yes, there is that spin. When used properly, it could be used to educate and to use a, a difficult opportunity to make your core message even stronger. So there's two ways of looking at it, right? You're in a crisis, or crisis might be too harsh of a word, but like a potentially negative story developing. Do you try to avoid the core issue and message or spin your way out of it? Or do you address that issue head on and then use that as a way to reinforce whatever your core stance is? I always thought of the latter, like, I mean, maybe just switch to the other side. When I was a reporter, I would ask a question. And it was a simple question. All you had to do is say yes or no. I don't care what the answer is. I mean, does your product do this? Rather than just saying no, that's not what it's designed for. They go into this whole freaking thing, like they're afraid that I'm going to write something bad about it. I'm like, hey, hey, own it, man. Just tell me why I'm wrong. That's how you handle those sticky situations. You don't try to hide or get nervous about the reaction. But people are so focused on the reaction that they forget that they have an ability to influence what that reaction is. Exactly. And you don't influence that action by diffusing the pressure of the moment. You know, I think that's what people want to do. They don't want to give the wrong answer. They don't want to deal with that short-term consequences of disappointment in their response. So instead, they kick the can down the road. They delay the day of reckoning. Which only makes that day worse. Way worse. It hurts everyone involved. You see these situations in crisis management in particular, and I think that's what you see with WHO with regard to the coronavirus, and I think that's what you see with Trump in dealing with this. I think of Boeing recently, you know, who had the 737 MAX problem, and they didn't own it. You know, they tried to hide it, they tried to minimize it, and it just dragged it out, and it's really damaged, significantly damaged, one of America's greatest companies. 
because they've tried to massage the narrative instead of dealing with the hard truth of like, this is bad, totally unacceptable, these different things that happened. We're gonna, this is how we're going to solve it. And laying out a specific plan for owning it, as you were saying. The tendency is to diffuse when something bad happens, to kind of push it away in some way, to kind of give yourself some breathing time or something. To try to, to figure out what you point. really want to say. <laughs> right. But I think that, you know, what you said earlier about, you know, just when it's a simple question, someone's asking you yes or no, whether it's a simple and easy question, a feature of a product, and you, you don't want to say no necessarily, or if it's something very serious, like potentially the stuff that's going on with coronavirus, I think that the problem of leaders is the tendency has become so common to just diffuse it instead of really, really owning it. So there's the Boeing example, I think is very significant. I also think that when you start essentially the diffusion lie in crisis management, it spins in ways you really can't even understand at first. So like you have things where you have the the surgeon general coming out saying that the individual risks increase with the use of masks. That's how twisted they get. And the problem is, is there's just not enough masks. So they're trying to triage the situation by making sure that the frontline health workers have enough. But if somebody would just say to people, in a perfect world, if we have plenty of masks, you'd want everyone to wear them because what it does is it keeps the sick people covered up so that they don't make other healthy people sick. So you really want everyone to wear a mask. That's what you want in an environment like this. Everyone. That's why the South Korea president came out and publicly apologized to the country for having a shortage of masks, not because they weren't useful at all, but because they were useful. When you have these situations where you're saying, no, everything's okay, the risk to Americans is very low, and you won't just admit that you're in a bad position, whether it's your fault or not, this is a bad position. You end up twisting yourself in knots, essentially causing lots of other disinformation out there. I think that's going to hurt later because once you get past this supply issue, you're going to want everyone to wear a mask for a little while. Everyone. Now, some people are going to actually have in their head, you know what? Masks actually increase the odds of this. Try and like reeducate the public on it. Just it's creating a giant mess by not owning it right away. In some cultures, there's this idea of fix the problem, not the blame. Let's focus on fixing the problem and worry about the blame later. And at the risk of overgeneralizing, I think that you see more of that fixing the problem led mindset in some more of the Eastern cultures. And it's usually a take on the ownership and, you know, try to, not, not always, right? I don't want to generalize. Generally, that's where that phrase comes from. Korea is in Japan, so there's things like that, right? But here, it's always like, oh, who's to blame? And, and so what happens on two levels. One, as the leader, you're looking for someone to blame, which then naturally puts you in a mindset of trying to avoid the blame yourself. And that's where you get to this messaging spin that we're talking about. That's sort of how I see that mindset being. So we've already sort of alluded to the alternative to this trying to diffuse or trying to spin or trying to find past blame. It's owning it. Do you have any other thoughts and, you know, in crisis management in particular, what should yeah. a leader do to really own it? Well, I have a couple of questions, actually, as a way of answering that question, basically. One, first of all, is that there's this idea of, in marketing and in messaging in general, there's this idea of trying to keep things simple, which is good because you want to make it clear. When you get to the more complicated stuff, like something as complicated as if we're talking about coronavirus, you know, health issues and science and things like that, like, where's the line? How do you find the line between having the respect for your audience that they're going to be able to understand things, yet not being so overcomplicated with data and facts and scientific concepts that you've made it worse. I think finding that line is essential to knowing how to answer that question. That's true. And I think about our own challenge we had, our own sort of crisis that we had when we pulled the IPO offering around the M catalog. And that was like, it was minor, certainly compared to Boeing's problems. It was a morale problem for our company. I mean, it was a really disappointment for everybody. And like, so how do you handle it? And there were some technical details in there 
there are some technical details about exactly how the decision was made to pull the plug and the things that happened with NASDAQ and the SEC and giving context around, you know, the other companies that use that same approach and whatever. So lots of details you could use. So I think that the important thing is you deliver the headline first. Like, here's what happened. Here's the facts. Yes, the sound familiar. That's, that's brilliant, Matt. Where did you get yeah. that? Well, that's a good communications guy I worked with once. <laughs> yeah, so I think you deliver the headline first. And then I think you provide some context, some background. Here's what happened. Here's kind of the lay of the land. And then here's what it means. And I think in specific steps, like what's exactly going to happen. And then you make yourself available for questions until they're all done. Almost have them punch themselves out. That's an interesting question. I mean, I don't know that we're getting to the question I asked, but we'll get to that in a second. The thing I want to add that I just thought of is that attention is the most difficult thing to achieve in communications as a company. Getting someone's attention is very, very, very hard. And I think that what most people, most companies do, they forget the benefit that a negative attention motivation can bring. We got a lot of attention when we launched the IPO because it was interesting and there was a big name attached and everything else. And then there was the potential for negative attention once it ended. So if you're going to have negative attention, that's where that kind of getting in front of it is essential, right? You, you communicate the negative news, but then use that, what I call an open door, to communicate more, to use it as a teaching moment for more. So the negative spark, for lack of a better term right now, is a gift. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to be embraced and used. And I think that sort of speaks back to what you're talking about, like what's the coronavirus stuff. Right now, people are hyper aware of this. They're looking for news. They're looking for information. They're seeking out. They're actively seeking out information. That's a gift. And to use that situation, be like, oh, nothing to see. Don't worry about it. Go, you know, stop watching TV and go buy shit. Use that. You have attention. That's the hardest thing to achieve. What are you going to do with it? Right. And of course, you can deliver the information that people need that can be constructive and helpful, but you can also demonstrate that you are different and that you will own something. You will step into the storm effectively. And I think that this situation is so opposite of that. You know, I mean, Pence being the lead of it and him like not allowing filming, no filming or a recording of what's said during the press conferences around it. It's like, seriously, like it's exactly not trying to own it and trying to limit information. I mean, the CDC starts stopped reporting on how many people they were testing. This is embarrassing and they have some excuse for it, but they just stopped reporting it. It's like you're undermining any faith that people might have in anything you might say later because you're trying to control information. And I think, you know, one of the things about when there's a crisis, get your message out first as one of the core ideas. And I think because it's like, if you get it in people's heads first, it's more likely to stay there. I think that's true. But I think the part that in a crisis that's most important about it is it's, we all admire somebody that will stand up and tell you the truth when it sucks to tell it. Like we all, as humans, we might be mad, but we go, yeah, you know, it took balls though to take that. Like, And you're going to believe whatever that person says later on when they're saying something that's, that's actually beneficial to them. Exactly, because they did something that was bad for them and they took it and they stood up and they told you the truth, even though they could be blamed for it. And it's in that taking ownership over it that you can craft a narrative that can be constructive and effective going forward. And there's always these pivot points. And even though people like Trump have handled this so poorly, any moment he could say, all right, let me tell you what's happening. Here's the facts about what I know right now. Here's what it means. And here's what we need to do. Much of all of this other stuff does get forgiven in that. It does get forgiven. But if you let it grind down, you know, if you let it continue to be diffused and sort of pass the buck, basically you find out that you're in a giant void of leadership 
and the person who does step up and does sort of take responsibility and take action around something does distinguish themselves. I think you're right. The crisis is a huge opportunity. Anytime that this negative stuff happens, there's a huge opportunity to distinguish yourself, your company, you know, your product or service as something that can help. And, you know, even like Google and Microsoft, one thing that they've done is because, you know, there's just been the call to remote work, which we were probably first on, by the way. The call to remote work has become, you know, pretty glaring. And so both Google and Microsoft, they have a tier of their online collaboration tools that is available only for enterprise and education. And they made it available for everybody. So they took that saying, this is a bad thing. You know what? We could charge for this, but we're going to actually make it so that it's free now, at least for a period of time, so that people can more effectively work remote. And it's done by the CEO, not by the marketing department. And at the same time, they're encouraging their own employees to work remote. It's, you know, congruent, essentially, the message that's coming from them. There's two fundamental underlying, I guess, foundations that are required for taking ownership to work. One is having a not only a knowledge of who your audience is, but a respect for them. Treat them not just like in terms of personal respect, but like don't completely insult their intelligence and thinking that, oh, the only thing they're going to get is this is bad. I get the simple message thing, but in this case, you don't have to do that. Those overly simplistic messages are done when people aren't paying attention. When they are paying attention, you've got the ability to provide a little bit more detail than otherwise might be considered smart. That's what I think is true. It's like when people are actively paying attention to you, now you can give them a little bit more detail, take the time to educate on certain things because they're actively asking for it. That's one. But what happens is we all get kind of punched into our head a simple one-line message that we continue to do that, even though it's like, no, that's only when they're not paying attention. You've got the benefit of their attention now. So that's one. Two is, particularly in any kind of a crisis, if you're going to use the crisis to more solidify whatever your foundational message is, you have to have that already developed. That has to be developed when things aren't a problem, right? You have to go through that process in advance. Not if something bad happens, what do we say? No, it's what are we saying no matter what? And then it's not like you're trying to come up with something when you're stressed. You're already there. Right, you're not newsjacking the event for some... PR management or anything, and credits that you're looking for places, events that are happening where you can step up and you can contribute to the conversation effectively with the messaging essentially you already have. And that messaging is a reflection of your strategy or your culture or all those other things that might already be there. So once with that solid and ingrained, it makes it a lot easier because then that way you get the uncomfortable questions, you have the uncomfortable situation, you're not panicking. You know, you know who you are. You know what you want to tell people. And it becomes much more natural and it's authentically authentic (laughs) as opposed to inauthentically authentic. And that sort of thing. So those are the two thoughts that I had there. If I'm starting to summarize this, I think the number one thing is you got to know what your message is. You got to have it already. You got to be already practicing to communicate it no matter what anyway. Then if a crisis happens or some event happens, if it affects you directly, then you step in and you own it. You just, you own it. You get to it early, you accept responsibility for it, you explain what happened, explain what you're going to do about it next. This is public facing, of course, but I also think more often these like mini crises occur within a company internally. How do you communicate internally like changes in direction that might be required as the business evolves or, you know, failed projects? You know, how do you communicate them internally? And I think uh, it's the same for that. So really owning it from there. And then once you basically are speaking to people you have their attention, don't patronize them. Don't treat them like children and give them buzzwords or phrases, you know, good slogans like, you know, make American great again. It doesn't work. Instead, just talk to them like they're adults. And I think have your message, 
if you're at the center point of a crisis, you take full responsibility early, you step into it. If a crisis is occurring or there's some major event going on and you are outside of it, but you can contribute congruently to that conversation with your existing message, then do it. And then when all of that's happening, no matter what, don't patronize people, don't talk to them like they're children. And if I could add just one, emphasize one point is that attention is a gift. Attention is the most difficult thing to gain for anyone. And when you have it, whether it's for a good reason or a quote, bad reason, don't hide from it, use it. You don't get it often and you don't know when it's gonna come again. So use it properly. There's a contrary example I just want to share to wrap this up that I saw on Twitter from Eric Weinstein. Do you know who he is? Not top of my head. He works for uh, Peter Thiel, but he's, I think he's a physicist or mathematician. Really, really intelligent guy, probably on the spectrum, Like, but he's a super intelligent guy. But here's what he tweeted today, and it's a tweet storm, so it's going to take me just a minute to read through it, but I think it's really worth seeing this different perspective. So he says, a completely crazy thread on coronavirus. What if instead of the public health emphasis on calming everyone, someone instead leveled with us, actually told us the truth? Quote, it is possible that a lot of us may be about to die. Let's not panic, however, as death is always with us. Americans have had an unprecedented good luck for the last 75 years, and we are going to have to realize, as we did on 9-11 and with the fall of Lehman Brothers, that this period may be anomalous. Thus, we need to do what previous generations did, toughen up prepare for loss. First, it would be a good time to recognize that our older and more vulnerable citizens could benefit from younger, stronger ones willing to take on burden and risk, making sure they are getting support if they are alone. Second, let's take time to make some preparations for the worst. But while we don't know how bad this may be, let us remember that life is an adventure without guarantees. If you see people panicking, share your strength with them. We need to get back to being stronger as a nation with an ability to take and bear real risk together. Thank you. I like that. It goes back to a lot of this idea of there's two ways of response that we're seeing right now. One is sort of this hoard and and bunker up and protect, a portion of which isn't necessarily bad. And the other is working together. I've seen a lot of this community support thinking come out in the conversation around this that I find very interesting and hopeful. It's an opportunity. It's not just how we respond to certain things, but literally who we are, not to get too aspirational here, but you know, who we are as a country, who are what we are as a society. Like, you know, that's a very interesting response to some of this stuff. I agree. And I think that it requires people who are in leadership roles and people who are not currently in leadership roles, but it requires people to just step up, be willing to speak the truth about what they see, to take ownership over the things that are within their area of influence and to uh, level with people. And I just think and again, he's assuming that the situation is like, he's not even necessarily saying it's this bad. He's like, it would just be good if it might be like this. And just to prepare people for difficulty, it's almost like, let's say that it doesn't actually go bad. Like, let's say that it actually just gets handled, like it gets mitigated and, you know, it goes away. It ends up being not a big deal, like something way less than H1N1 it was. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't this message make everyone better? Wouldn't this distinguish a leader from other leaders? Wouldn't the net good be there no matter what? Yes, but that's where the fear of being wrong comes in, right, Matt? This is what everyone's so afraid of. This is like a, a really serious result of a very common thing you see. Like the hardest thing that anyone can write is a good movie review because, oh my gosh, being in support of something, that we got to tear everything down. We got to point out why everything's wrong, right? As a cynical reporter, I understand my hypocrisy of saying this, but like, it's so much safer to be the cynical 
person and then trying to be the one that says otherwise. And if we do get all these people on board to make this change, to be supportive of one another, and it doesn't turn out to be bad, somehow there will be a huge chunk of people on both sides that feel that undermines the message of actually being supportive of others. You see what I'm saying? So it's like a fear of that. I think that that's what it is. It's fear of being wrong. And then one thing I agree with, it is really hard to know when it's time to stand up. Because you see lots of little things in your life that you go, I can make a big deal out of this. But really, is this the thing that I want to be known for making a big deal out of? Right. It's the fear you know? of having a position. Right. But isn't that cowardice? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, because it's like the gauge at which we determine whether something's good or bad is not the substance of what the idea is, it's how many likes it got. We've got this weird way of like measuring success by based on just, you know, oh, th this snarky comment got the most likes, so therefore it must be good. Well, that's wrong. You know, that doesn't make any sense. I, th I mean, we're, yeah, we're, we're kind of getting a little off topic, but like we've been conditioned to not have the courage of our convictions, basically. Well, if there's one thing that comes out of the coronavirus, I hope that's it. <laughs> and if nothing else, if you are planning, like if you're running a company, if you're in a leadership role of any kind, I think that hopefully the kind of steps to preparing yourself for crisis and to responding in a net positive way to crisis, hopefully the things we talked about here can help you do that better. All right. Well, thanks very much. And, and Matt, you. if I could just as a personal note, thank you for the leadership that you've shown as the head of our company. You've made some steps that I think has made everybody not just safer, but uh, more aware of things. So thank you for that. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good week.